Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us today Josh Silver, political consultant, extraordinary political consultant, one of the most insightful people on national and local politics who we know. Josh Silver, tomorrow is the great Republican debate. Well, I'm not so sure about great, but it is the Republican debate. I believe eight candidates on the stage and one who is not one Donald Trump. So my question for you is... What should we be looking for in the debate tomorrow? And should we have a split screen on our televisions with Trump on one side and the other eight on the other? What are we to make of Trump not being there? Hi, guys. Yeah, well, first of all, maybe what you should be asking is, does this even matter? Which is really the first uh, thing we should speak to, right? I mean, if you look at the most recent uh, polling, it's pretty stark. Trump is up by 23 points in Iowa. He's up by 34 points. And I'm saying over, this is over his Republican opponents who will be in the debate. He's up by 34 points in South Carolina. Um, he's up by 44 points uh, nationally against his opponents. Um, you know, this is, it, it just continues to go on and on where Trump is ahead by somewhere between 22 and 45 points ahead of his points. Nobody's ever lost a nomination with these kinds of numbers, even this far out. And keep in mind, it's we're pushing the end of August. You know, voting in the primary begins in January. It's not that far away. It's far away, but it's not crazy far. And so there, on one hand, there's a sort of an element of, does this even matter? Now, the, the eight that are in the Republican uh, debate tomorrow night are going to be Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, Vivek Ramanswamy, who's very like he's basically another Trump, uh, a young, rich uh, Trump, Mike Pence, need I say more, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, uh, the South, South Carolina Senator Chris Christie, uh, Doug Burgum, the North Carolina, North Dakota governor, and Asa Hutchinson, the former Arkansas governor. Now, the, the thing that's notable about this, there's only one of the people I've just said uh, who's critical of Trump. And as you probably have heard, it's Chris Christie, and he's very good at it. So it's going to be interesting not having Trump there. There's speculation that Ron DeSantis, as the strong second choice of Republican voters, uh, even though he's having a terrible campaign, is going to be the target of most of the sort of attacks by the other Republican candidates. Um, and of course, there have been some moments in Republican candidate history where, you know, it does matter, where there are zingers that really do take down candidates. I think you you, you had um, moments where, I think, you know, Chris Christie took down uh, Marco Rubio from Florida, that happens, but given Trump's dominance, given that he's not even going to be on stage, he'll be, he pre-taped an interview with Tucker Carlson uh, that's going to be aired at the same time. I just, I'm just not convinced that this, that this is going to be a relevant debate. I would like to pause there for a moment because one of the points made on the news hour on uh, PBS last night, uh, on their Politics Monday segment was that that one third of the undecideds in, or at least the persuadables in the Republican f 
primary among the group of Republican primary voters, one third of those who are say they are persuadable actually will consider voting for Trump so that his numbers are actually somewhat better, not worse than they first appear. Two thirds of those are open to DeSantis as well. But I'm wondering what you make of that, whether that's really real. I mean, I think it's real, but one thing that struck me, uh, ABC News, they've got this guy, he's been there forever, I can't remember his name, but he goes to these um, sort of town halls that are happening around the country, and he, and he just goes to these primary states while the candidates are there. And, and it was striking that anecdotally at these events, including Trump events, he interviewed a very high number of Republican voters who voted for Trump in the last two elections, but expressed a genuine Trump fatigue that they sort of were like, I like Trump, I voted for him, but I am sort of tired of all this drama and it's getting old. And the question is, <clears throat> to what degree is that, you know, actually something that would be significant enough for Trump to lose the nomination? And the, and the problem is, is that, the only person who realistically has the sort of firepower to do that would be Ron DeSantis, but he's a terrible candidate, right? And I say Ron DeSantis because remember, <clears throat> he just crushed it in the last, like in, in 2022, when Republicans up and down the ballot just kind of got their butts kicked and, and most Trump anointed and Trump friendly candidates got beaten and all across the country, Ron DeSantis just crushed in his race for re-election uh, re to the governor's office. And he was like the shining light, but it turns out that he has like zero charisma and, and being a politician who makes your entire career about what you're opposed to rather than what you're for, which is the definition of Ron DeSantis, just doesn't work. And he's just not a likable human being. So. You know, given that, you know, I mean, I'm again, you know, I told you those numbers uh, before, but like, you know, in the Iowa uh, caucus, which matters, but not that much, right? Because there's been a lot of times where Republicans have won Iowa and then got trounced later in the primary. You know, it's Trump 42, DeSantis 19. South Carolina, it's Trump 48, DeSantis 14. Uh, and in, uh, in 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 other states, we're seeing similar numbers reflected nationally. It's Trump 58, DeSantis 14. Nobody's going to emerge from this field and beat him. Chris Christie, who some of you here in the Valley might be saying, well, Chris Christie, I don't love the guy, but at least he's speaking truth to power or criticizing Trump. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Sununu, the, um, the governor of New Hampshire, came out with an op-ed a couple of days ago in The New York Times say making the case that Republicans need to voice more uh, criticisms of Donald Trump if they're to have any chance of emerging from this Republican presidential primary field. Chris Christie is polling at about three to seven points. So he's the only one critical of Trump and that's not working. So there you have Trump. He's sitting atop this and he is he's got so much momentum. He doesn't need to go to the debate and he's going to win. One analysis, Josh Silver, that I've heard is that Trump is running as if he is the incumbent president. He's doing exactly what he would do if he were the president, which is he's going to ignore these uh, uh, pretenders to the throne. 
in the same way that the president, Joe Biden, is going to ignore Kennedy and the other uh, Democratic uh, wannabes. Does that sound right to you? 100 percent. And and he also, you know, Trump also has another sort of ace in his back pocket, Bill, which is that, you know, Trump knows that you've got Cornell West, a very progressive African-American professor from Princeton, who is most likely going to be on the Green Party ticket uh, in, in every state or nearly every state. Um, and you've got this no labels bid that's going to likely uh, see no labels, a more moderate sort of let's bring Democrats and Republicans together, fielding a presidential uh, ticket as well. And all of the numbers for those scenarios are terrifying for Joe Biden, right? Where whereas <clears throat> Joe Biden is currently enjoying a very slight lead against Trump in a head to head uh, rematch of 2020, uh, it's really bad news for Joe Biden if these other candidates are in the races, because every poll, and there's now been many, shows that these third parties are pulling much more significantly from Joe Biden than they are for Donald Trump. One last question on the debate, Josh Silver. One analysis is that this is a race in the debate to become the alternative to Trump that what could bring down Trump is a trial before the primaries or during the primaries, and that what the other candidates need to do or want to accomplish to, uh, tomorrow night is become number two, the alternative to Trump. You agree with that? I do, but remember, Bill, you know, the indictments only make Trump stronger. It's so weird, right? Like, it's like the history is just flipped on its head here. And the the divide is so massive that even if one of these candidates leapfrogs Ron DeSantis and becomes the number two, it's like, okay, so what? So instead of, you know, you, they get past DeSantis, who currently is pulling somewhere between 12 and 18 points, and maybe one of them gets up to 20 points, it just doesn't matter. So sure, there's this is a subpar field. There's no really strong candidate pushing up against Trump. The Trump wing of the Republican Party is massively dominant amongst likely Republican voters. And remember, you know, people need to remember primary election voters are a small swath of the American electorate. Only 14 percent of the American voters nationally was enough to get Trump the nomination for the Republican nomination in 2016, the first year he ran. So that's a relatively small number of people. I think it was like 11 million people or something. So you, it's just the way it works with primaries and that the most extreme voters turn out for primaries, that really helps autocratic candidates like Donald Trump extremists. And it's why we have this extremism that has just taken over American politics is that the, the duopoly system of two parties that duke it out in a, in a primary election where a very small percentage of voters actually turn out and give us candidates for each party that that rely on the extremes, particularly on the Republican side in recent cycles, this is highly problematic. And so the elephant in the room is, we are not going to get this country back on track towards moderation, towards integrity, towards competition 
until we change how we vote, how we conduct elections, which are really modeled in an 18th century model that hasn't changed in 250 years. And so when people scratch their heads and say, why is everything so extreme? Why do the candidates suck? Like, what's wrong? It's like, well, because like, what would happen if you were driving around a, a car that hasn't been, you know, innovated or changed for the last 80 years, or in this case with elections, 250 uh, Josh, this is Buzz, and there is, this is the one last question on the debate, which is that uh, we've all heard uh, that uh, Donald Trump, not on the stage, is going to be, uh, there's going to be a, a taping, uh, the Tucker Carlson, who was fired from Fox, uh, of uh, the interview with Donald Trump, in which he's alleged to have given him the questions before the interview, and it's going to be aired somewhere. I've read that it's going to be aired on X which is the new branding name for Twitter. What do you know about that? And who's going to watch which event? How many people are going to be Republicans, voters, are going to be watching Trump and Carlson versus uh, the debate? Josh? Josh, now I'm back. Sorry, you guys will have to restate the question. I'm sorry, Buzz, I uh, lost you. That's okay. Tucker Carlson is going to be, he he has interviewed Trump. It's been taped. He's going to be airing it uh, in opposition to the debate. It's going to be on something called X, I understand, which is formerly Twitter. Uh, Musk is rebranding it. Who's among those voters, those Republican likely voters, who's going to be watching the debate versus the Trump interview? Oh, it's, you know, it's Fox. It's a a massive, massive disparity. You know, sure, Tucker Carlson's podcast basically is doing surprisingly well. But no, I mean, we're talking about the number. It's about the earned media coverage, if you will. It's about the the media's coverage of the Tucker Carlson show and what Trump says, which, of course, it's Trump. He's brilliant with branding and catching attention. He's going to say some inflammatory things that are going to get headlines, but it's not going to be the real time buzz. It's going to be how the media plays it and how it's shared on social media, which is so huge with the Republican base. That's going to be where this is relevant. We're speaking with Josh Silver. This is Political Gold with Josh Silver. Right after this break, we're going to ask Josh, to go back to this question, wait a second. If Biden and Trump are polling very evenly and these other parties may actually, the Green Party and the No Labels Party might actually take a lot of votes from Biden, is there a realistic possibility that Donald Trump really is elected president in November? We'll be right back. Heartaches are going to the inside. My tears are holding back. They're trying not to fall. My heart's out of the running. True love scratched for another's sake. The race is... More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or co-workers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. Performance 33, The Elements. August 22nd, Pines Theater, Look Park. Celebrate 33 years of bringing our community together to support music and the arts in our public schools. 4.30 to 9.30, we'll celebrate the power of science and weather with The Elements. 20 local hero bands take on the personas of artists like Neil Diamond, Credence Clearwater Revival, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, and Schoolhouse Rock. Performance 33 at Pines Theater, Look Park, Florence, Mass., August 22nd. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. aspects of this presidential race that I have found most perplexing is my inability to wrap my mind around the possibility that Donald Trump could actually win the election. I, I know that polls tell us that this is in fact possible, but it seems to me that I'm in some sort of unrealistic denial about what is happening here. Because in my heart of hearts, I keep saying to myself, Trump can't possibly win. There are not that many fascist self-identified potential voters in the United States. It's just impossible that he could win. But in fact, it turns out that uh, it is possible. In fact, if you look at the polling and the potential effect of the third and fourth parties, Trump could actually win the election. Josh Silver, I'd really appreciate your perspective. Tell me, tell me, tell me I'm wrong, please. I mean, first of all, let, let's back up. So you, you, you're not wrong, and it's entirely possible given these third party candidates that appear heading towards the ballot uh, that you we could see another Trump presidency. All right, absolutely. But you have to also keep in mind, Bill, no offense, but like like the the country is not like the jet setting type. I think you're you know, you have a child who lives in this amazing place in another part of the world doing amazing things and you jet around and you like I just got back from from Paris and saw a PSG soccer game. This is not America. America is deeply resentful. It's economic based primarily. The middle class has been eviscerated by Republicans and Democrats over the last 40, 50 years and their policies and they're pissed. I mean, I just was reading that the average white household income in Georgia is $80,000 a year. The average black family 
in in Georgia brings in forty thousand dollars a year. I mean, this is a country that is deeply resentful of the status quo, and both the Republicans and the Democrats are the the status quo. And so when you talk about like, how is it possible that this authoritarian can be so popular? He's popular because overwhelmingly, and I know you know this, but this orange haired madman as just this big middle finger to the status quo and, and business as usual. And it's gotten convoluted and warped. And yes, it's like, just like Republicans over the last 40 years have done, they've convinced, uh, used wedge issues like guns and religion and gay marriage to turn Republican voters against their very own economic interests that is getting their supporters excited about them while eviscerating, you know, the policies that would help Republican voters economically. We get that. But the fact is, is that once you add these wild card, no labels and Green Party candidates into the mix, which would each get between one and four percentage points and and mindful that like, I mean, I've even seen polling of of uh, see if I can bring it up of of likely Democratic voters that are actually looking at like, you know, you know, we're talking about like seven, we might see seven points go to uh, Cornell West as as bad as that sounds. I mean, you could see that high of a percentage in a in a presidential. So absolutely, it's terrifying. As of right now, I have some new information that's actually not even uh, widely known, which is no labels, the moderate party that is threatening to run Joe Manchin as their presidential candidate. He is not officially agreed. We don't know that's going to happen, but that's the talk. They are on the ballot in Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, uh, Maine, almost almost certainly, Nevada, uh, North Carolina, Oregon, they, they, Utah, South Dakota, th these are all states that No Labels has already established a ballot line. And not only are they going to be on the ballot line for president, that means they're on the ballot line across the whole ballot down through statewide, like governor, secretary of state, state legislature. So this third party threat to the Democratic Party is real, it's existential, and it's going to be a game changer next year. That's depressing. Is there some response that Biden and Democrats can make? Because the net result is Trump could win the Electoral College and be elected president, which seems impossible. I mean, how are you going to have a cabinet meeting in prison? But that said, it could really happen. So what should, in your opinion, Biden and Democrats do at this point? Well, so I'm, I'm going to tell you the following, Bill, but with the caveat that, you know, as many of your listeners know, I have spent the last 12 years of my life working to pass policies, particularly at the state and local level, since you can't get it federally right away, that actually change how elections work 
so that third party and independent party candidates can run and win. And that's my main goal. If I, I've, I've devoted my life to that, that work and it's utterly important. That said, if you are the Democrats and Joe Biden, it's not about what you say or do tactically in front of the camera. It's about quietly doing whatever is necessary to basically blow up these third party runs, uh, you know, kill them in the cradle, like beat them before it even starts and figure out ways to disrupt their strategy and prevent them from gaining access to the ballot where you can or, you know, making them talk a toxic brand and 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 just dissuading as much as you can these third party runs from actually becoming real. Is no labels a stalking horse really for Trump? Because what the effect of no labels would be if they were successful would be to elect Trump. That's that's the reality. Is that part of the plan? Is that the hidden agenda? It's not. No, no labels is is run by Nancy Jacobson and Mark Penn. They're a couple. Um, she's been running uh, no labels for many years, and and they genuinely believe that if you can find middle ground between Democrats and Republicans, that you are going to have better outcomes. And what it is is it's essentially, and it's backed by very, very wealthy donors who tend to be from the sort of Reagan Bush set. These are like moderately conservative, I'd say, I'd say economically conservative, socially liberal types who really believe in 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 capitalism and they believe that rich people should get richer and that tax policy should benefit the the wealthy. They sort of are from that sort of trickle down nonsense crowd. And I'm not saying they all are like that, but many are. And they genuinely have this romantic vision that if you find middle ground between the parties, that you have a better you have a, a better country. And we all know that's not true. We all know that that's actually the opposite of what's true and what's needed is a reset in which the interest, the public interest matters more than corporate interests and the billionaire class. So they're believers and it just happens to align with the interests of Donald Trump. So if you're Donald Trump, you're seeing this come together and what you're doing is you are helping these other parties succeed quietly, clandestinely, and that is definitely happening right now, where money is going towards Cornell West's bid through independent expenditures from the, the right. Once the Republicans, they know that Trump is their, their guy, but once it's codified and assured, the entire Republican Party apparatus will then do the same, and you are going to see all kinds of nefarious, you're not going to see, but there will be all kinds of nefarious activity being done to boost the prospects for no labels and for the Green Party to ensure that Donald Trump wins next year. Josh, in a couple minutes we have left, there was uh, uh, this group, the, the Lincoln Project, that was uh, establishment Republicans rather than the far right, right fringe Republicans that was uh, condemning not only Trump, but the policies that Trump represented and a more sort of mainstream, old-fashioned Republican view of the world. What happened to the Lincoln Project? You know, they've sort of, they had a lot of, as you know, Buzz, they had a lot of scandal. There was like, you know, allegations of sexual min- misconduct, uh, misappropriated money, people getting rich. And uh, but they are still going more quietly now. They actually have more videos that have come out more recently. 
But keep in mind, Buzz, while they do come from that sort of Reagan wing of the party, the difference is, is that the Lincoln Project operatives are operatives and they're smart and their job, their mission is to beat Trump and they understand the threat that no labels and the Green Party poses to Biden's prospects for winning a second term. So therefore, they are adamantly opposed to these third party runs and they are actually um, they are helping to make sure that these th third party runs uh, do as little damage as possible, whether or not there will be success in that larger effort to neuter these third party runs is unclear right now, but it's something for everyone to keep an eye on. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with political consultant Josh Silver. This has been Political Goal with Josh Silver. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. You bet. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Just days after it was announced that Dr. Michael Morris would be leaving his role as Amherst Pelham Public Schools superintendent, Another staff member has announced their resignation. Regional School Committee Chair Ben Harrington announced his resignation in a lengthy social media post early yesterday morning, and yesterday was his last day. This comes just days after it was announced that Dr. Michael Morris would no longer serve as superintendent, a decision that was described as mutually agreed upon. Back in May, several staff members were put on leave as a Title IX investigation began into the handling of a reported LGBTQ plus bullying at the school. The report is expected to be out sometime this week. The former site of the Hampshire County Register of Deeds is set to be sold this fall. The building at 33 King Street will be turned into a new multi-story building, according to the Gazette, with a minimum sales price of $2.5 million. The property consists of a nearly one-and-a-half-acre parcel located next to the Calvin Theater. Proceeds from the potential sale would be split between the city and the state. The city council will discuss specifics of the bidding at a joint meeting on September 6th, and the city hopes to start accepting bids in early September. Congressman Jim McGovern will be embarking on his district-wide farm tour today. The 13th annual tour will include visits to 11 farms across Western Mass to hear about the challenges local farmers are facing and discuss the needs of farmers as they recover from historic rainfall and flooding. Farms that will receive a visit include Mayville Farm Creamery in West Hampton, Flat Rock Farm in Chesterfield, and Natural Roots in Conway. Mostly sunny today, low humidity and a little breezy out of the north, a high of 76 to 80. Clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. It'll be mostly sunny again tomorrow, a high of 74 to 78. Some showers are possible Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work 
again like they're supposed to, and there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option, and the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450, Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is our segment titled Sex Matters with our show's, re- show's resident sexologist, Dr. Jane Fleischman. Doctor, yes. I would like to ask your, uh, your feelings about this, this obituary, this news story actually from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Boston Globe earlier this month. Alice Kahn Lattice, pioneer in women's sexuality, dies at 102. I know. Isn't that amazing? Her best-selling 1982 book, The G-Spot, written with two co-authors, helped loosen constraints on women's sexual experience. Let me just share a couple of sentences of this with our listeners. Alice Kahn Lattice, a psychologist and psychotherapist who helped loosen constraints on women's sexual experience as co-author of the best-selling book, The G-Spot, and other recent discoveries about human sexuality died July 29th at her home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She was 102. That's so cool, don't you think? That's cool. Just to begin with. Published in 1982, the G-Spot took book clubs by storm on its way to selling more than 1 million copies around the world, and it remains in print. It is an enduring entry in the canon of books that emerged in the wake of the sexual revolution and the women's liberation movement. Dr. Lattice wrote the G-Spot with two colleagues, Beverly Whipple, a nurse and researcher in human sexuality, and the story goes on from there. The G-Spot was, in fact, a significant, significant book. It made a huge difference in uh, public discourse about sex, and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that book. I know you are friends with and colleagues yeah, with yeah, one yeah. of the co-authors, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm wondering what you, you think about that. Yeah, I don't actually know Alice Kahn Lattice, but I know her work because her co-author, Dr. Beverly Whipple, is a colleague of mine, and she's an amazing sexuality researcher who has devoted her life, like Alice did, to women's sexuality. And you know, Bill, do you know what the G-spot was named after? Um, I, I don't. I do know that it gave great encouragement for 
uh, heterosexual men who thought <laughs> there was some magical place where you could right. be a good sexual partner, uh, and it removed all possible <laughs> concerns about performance. All you had to be able to know was this G spot, where but the spot it was. It didn't, but uh, it, right on the wall, uh, right. Uh, but Bill, you know what's interesting? Um, until their book, um, a guy named Graffenberg was known for his discovery of the G-spot. And then when Alice Lattice and Beverly Whipple and their uh, third colleague wrote this book, all of a sudden people realized, oh, this is for women. It's good that women were figuring this out. So what's great about it is that they really sort of took apart this idea that everything had to be about penetration and a very hard penis and um, going in as deep as possible. This was actually a, a spot on the wall of the vaginal canal that okay, could be so, stimulated. Okay, so... so uh, how to phrase this. Does that exist? So that's a really good question, Bill. Since 82, there's been some really very cool discoveries, particularly around the clitoris, which we have covered in this show before, but I will review it for you and our listeners. <laughs> for those of us and who also, are slow on the right, uptake. And also for Buzz, because I don't think Buzz was here when we really did this. But what's I'm all ears. Jim. I hear you. So what's very cool about it is that the clitoris used to be see, thought of as just that one nub, that one point that is actually um, uh, composed of erectile tissue at the um, top of the vulva um, above the vaginal canal. But what's really cool, Bill, I know you're going to like this because you like science, is that <laughs> the vulva... That, that's why I listen has, to you in this segment, Jane, because of the science. I know you do. So has labia, inner labia and outer labia. The, the clitoris has two legs that come way down into the vaginal canal through the labia. So one of the things that people are now looking at, and some of the sex researchers that I know are really doing some great work, is trying to figure out, was it the G-spot or was it actually the, clit the clitoral legs that were getting engorged, that were getting stimulated? We don't really know this yet, but it's kind of a cool thing to think about. We just thought of it as a nub and Listeners, I'm like making a little diagram here in the... In the <laughs> okay, I'm just <laughs> trying to draw as quickly right. as possible. And so there's a nub at the top and then there's two legs. Two legs. Around. Two legs. So we don't know for sure, but, you know, there's people who... In fact, today I was going to talk uh, are about Are they looking the for volunteers on the research? They might. Well, I don't know that your anatomy would work so well, Buzz. I don't really know you that <laughs> I well. I thinking but, of my anatomy. <laughs> but, they, but there's, you know, people like Beverly have been doing this research for literally 40 years. And okay. the clitoris was really under-understood. And women's anatomy was under-understood. And so I think that their book in the 80s really kind of, you know, um, gave a great uh, example of how the researchers needed to really look more carefully. I, I, I would like to know this. Let me sure. uh, quote this. A uh, quick summary of the book, The G-Spot and Other Recent Discoveries About Human Sexuality is a book by Alice Kahn Lattice, Beverly Whipple, and John D. Perry that argues for the existence of the Grafenberg. Yeah, Grafenberg. That was the guy that kind of got his name attached to it. You know, popularized the term, the G-Spot. I just have to say, have you ever heard of Kegels, Bill, or Buzz? Yes. yes. They're named after another guy, Arthur Kegel, a urologist. <laughs> I mean, really, come on, gang. Like, do we have to? I want Fleischmann's. I think it would be great. <laughs> or Jane's. Or Jane's. I mean, Jane's would be good too, actually. <laughs> do your Jane's. <laughs> I tell all my clients that. Do your Jane's. So it is interesting to me that this book came out in 1982. That's a long time to do the research, and yeah. yet. 
and, and the book's translated to 19 languages, I know, I know. millions millions of, 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 of uh, volumes sold, yeah. and yet the research whether or not this is actually real is not definitive yet. Well, none of it is definitive yet. And, you know, I think that's part of what's beautiful about the discovery of science, that we have more and more to discover. And one thing I wanted to say about Alice and her age, Bill, people in my field live to be over 100. My mentor <laughs> lived to be 102. The woman who started our national organization lived to be 104. I mean, I'm going, you know, like I'm almost 70 and I'm not even close to there. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the longevity in my field. Jane, Jane Fleischman, looking forward for the next 30 plus years. <laughs> More sex is good for more years. Something like that, a best-selling new book. How? No, yes? I don't think so. That's pretty no. interesting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea, but I think everybody would buy it. It wouldn't be a best-seller. Also, the other thing about the obituary that you were reading from, book clubs all over the world were looking at this book. Who is in a book club? I'm going to guess women. Yeah, I mean, mostly, predominantly. So, of course, they were excited about that. So, what an amazing thing. And I remember when that book came out, we were psyched. But it was also part of a movement that women could enjoy sex, which for a lot of men was, whoa, that's news. Um, and it's not all about you heterosexual guys. Right, women right. have a right to sexual right. pleasure. And that was, I think, in some ways, the revolutionary part of this book. I think that's so true, Bill. And it was really part of a very, you know, active part of the this new wave of the women's movement that was really taking sexual pleasure into a very important part of women's lives. Right, because you look back even at the social justice movements in the 60s, and they were largely sexist in totally, the extreme. Totally, yeah. Women were really um, second, you know, second to all the men and you know, most of the liberation movements. And there was a fight inside the movement for women to not only fight for whatever the social justice cause was, but also to be able to be seen as equal to the men in the movement. Yeah. So can we talk about the next topic now? Sure, the next topic. Well. What is the next topic? So oh, my excited. God, Jane is really excited. I'm excited. <laughs> Dan is ready to mute me whenever possible. So you know I've been on your show, Bill, since 2018. And we have covered a lot of stuff in those five years. There's been a lot of sex over the last five. Sex matters over the last five That's years. That's right, Bill. And we've talked about the penis and the clitoris and the vaginal canal. And I brought in my puppets and lube and toys. And we've talked about all sorts of fun things. Right. The day you brought the toys in was one of the most... That was uh, a great day. It was a great day. It was a great day. And today we're going to actually talk about one of those toys. But today, since it's August, I thought we'd talk about something that starts with the letter A... Oy vey. Oy vey. Does that start with a? No. And it's a bit of a taboo. So are you ready? So Buzz is looking at me very nervously. I'm waiting. <laughs> Dan has his finger on the button, and Bill is just waiting, I think. So today we're going to talk about something that's sexy, but it also has a lot of stigma around it. And it's a bit of a taboo. So are you ready? I don't know. Well, <laughs> to be honest, how do you get ready for this? We're going to talk about anal sex. And today we're all about all bots. Dan has not hit the button yet. Okay, good. Yeah. So, yes. sometimes as it's clinically known, as possible, please tell us what well, we're talking about. Well, Urban Dictionary sometimes calls it uh, right into the science around anal sex. So, it could be penetration or it could be not penetration. In fact, there's lots of possibilities. And, you know, 
I was wondering if you thought it was common or uncommon. Any ideas? I would say more common than you think. Okay. Buzz? I, I parrot what Bill said. Well, Kinsey and his colleagues conducted landmark studies in the mid-20th century, but they didn't look at prevalence. They mostly looked at sexual diversity, and they found that people were engaged in all sorts of sexual play, including anal play, but with more, they also looked at more traditional forms of PIV. But in 2020, Debbie Herbenick and her colleagues at the Kinsey Institute looked at prevalence, and they found that anal is fairly common. In fact, 33% of adults in the U.S. have had at least one experience with anal sex, but it's less common than compared to oral, which is 84%, or vaginal, which is 88.5%. Women reported more receptive anal sex, 38%, than men, 9%. But men reported more lifetime insertive anal sex, 43%. Now, the age of initiation for oral or vaginal sex was younger than the age of initiation for anal sex. And gay men reported higher rates of anal sex than heterosexual men, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So why are people engaging in anal sex? Well, first of all, the anus has a lot of nerve endings. It's full of nerve endings, which makes it very sensitive. And many people find this kind of sex pleasurable. In fact, an estimated 90% of men who've had sex with men, and as many as 5 to 10% of sexually active women, report having anal intercourse in the last five years. So why is it considered so taboo or dirty when so many people are doing it that way? Because yucky stuff comes out of it. You That's got why. it. Yuck is the big connection. Yuck. There's a big yuck association. Yuck. People are afraid of what it might mean, like if discharges of waste are coming out of that spot. Yeah. And, that might, and it, they're afraid of what it might mean about them. And so there's a lot of dark and false notions about this kind of sex. So does it mean you're gay if you like anal sex? What do you think? I'm going to go with no on that. I'm going well, to go with no, too. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Bill, for telling Buzz the answer. <laughs> of course not. Buzz is kind of cheating on this test, don't you think? Well, he's looking, you know, he's looking nervously <laughs> he's, at, at and the he's looking thing. at me. Why is he right. looking at me? I don't know why, but you're doing a very good job. Thank you very much. Because and, you're yucking up a storm over there, oh, Newman. Don't yuck his yum. Okay, but you can be gay or heterosexual or lesbian or bi or trans or any type of sexual orientation and enjoy this kind of sex. Because unlike a vagina, everyone's got an anus. So you're in luck with whatever your sexual orientation is. And by the way, many gay male couples have anal sex, but not all of them do. Even heterosexual couples enjoy anal sex. And two people who identify as women who have vaginas can also enjoy anal sex. So people without penises could use a sex toy. Where a woman does this to a man, there's all different possibilities. Is it all different possibilities? Well, I think I have to go to the bathroom, which means we need to take a break, and we'll be right back with more with Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman I after said, this. Oy vey. Oy vey.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this segment titled Sex Matters with our show's resident sexologist, Dr. Jane Fleischman, we are today talking about, I can't quite believe it, anal sex. And what I'd like to ask you, doctor, is, is anal sex, in addition to the yuck factor, which I thought I described so brilliantly in the previous segment. Um, is it painful? Is it yucky? Uh, yeah. are, are there uh, uh, aspects of anal sex that are really not, not pleasurable? That's a really good question. There's a lot of misconceptions that suggest anal sex is a painful experience, and it can be for the receiver, right? Um, for instance, if you have hemorrhoids or anal warts or fissures or any kind of pain that hurts any kind of uh, stimulation of the anal canal, it can be painful, and you really do not want to engage in anal sex when you're in that, those conditions. However, doing this kind of sexual behavior correctly can involve little or no pain, going slow, using a lot of lube, because remember, the anal canal doesn't have any natural lubrication, so using a lot of lube, talking to each other throughout the time you spend together can make this really pleasurable. Because every person will get a different sensation, ranging from that kind of difficult, pain, painful thing to extreme pleasure. And your experience depends on who you are and whether you're receiving or you're giving. And remember that those nerve endings can really be a source of great, great pleasure. 
And so if you can relax into it. Now, Bill, here's a, this is a really important thing. People need to relax and make sure that they are really talking and having great communication. The constant communication is what will allow it to feel good. Stop when you need to, go slow, proceed carefully, and make sure you maximize your pleasure. And of course, make sure you have consent. Yeah, and somehow, I don't know how to describe this to you, Dr. Fleischman, Get over the yuck factor. There you it's go. yucky there down there. there. <laughs> Bill, you're such a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> it's the maturity I bring to yes. this. I can't believe we made it through this discussion. But we apparently have, sadly or fortunately, we are now at the end of Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman, who is our, our show's resident sexologist. Dr. Fleischman, thank you so much for being with us. We thank really you. appreciate your insights and the information. Great. Thanks so much. She got a pack much bag, so fellas, yeah. fellas. Yeah. Do you have no idea how you feel? There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers. Exercise classes to blow off steam. Even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is that wonderful time of the month when we get to do our fair play segment with our uh, incredible uh, member of the Society for American Baseball Research, uh, baseball author, baseball observer, expert on the Negro Leagues, Duke Goldman. Thank you for being with us again today, Duke. My pleasure. So Dan Torres. Uh, yes. You are of Spanish origin. Your uh, mother... I'm half Spanish, yes. Half Spanish, half Brazilian. Uh, we had the FIFA Women's World Cup recently, and who won, Dan? Spain won 1-0 against uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, who, who was the favorite in the number one seed who didn't win? Oh, the United States, yeah. They had a really difficult uh, World Cup. Um, they did not succeed. They were They were knocked out. Um, in penalty kicks, if I remember correctly, Correct. against Sweden. Yeah, and Megan, so. Megan Rapino missed. Uh, and Megan Rapino missed, which then caused a lot of people who don't like Megan personally or her politics and all of that to be uh, ecstatic that the American uh, team was kicked off. Yeah, Trump went after her, right? Yeah. yeah. Celebrated the Celebrating American team their losing. Loss. Their loss, yeah. It's so interesting. You know, he tweeted out apparently that woke warriors 
lose, you know, referring to this team of woke people. I guess they're woke because they woke up and realized, you know, they're not interested in going to the White House and visiting a sexual predator, a man who has been civilly convicted of what is legally the definition of rape, okay? So they didn't want to go. I guess before that, when the women's soccer team won, the U.S. women's soccer team twice won the World Cup twice, twice in a row, row, four times out of nine tournaments, they, they must have been MAGA warriors back then. But when they decided not to go to the White House to visit the guy who bragged about attacking women, now they became woke warriors. Very by the, interesting. By the way, just to have you guys know, in winning two World Cups back-to-back, has only been done by Italy and Brazil. So just to give you a context, and Italy did it in the 1930s, and Brazil did it in 58 and 62, because as a Brazilian, we know that. Um, and now you're <laughs> talking so you about... know how big of an achievement right, that is to right. have it, you know, over eight years to win two World Cups. And whether we like it or not, it is said that uh, the U.S. women team, by winning two, years in, two uh, tournaments in a row, what they did is popularize women's soccer for the world. Absolutely. There is absolutely no question of that. And those women women have stood up to be counted. They have gone out there and played their hearts out. And they also sued successfully to get equal pay because they were not paid commensurate with their performance. Okay. And this is a battle women are fighting and winning, but there is a long way to go. And one of the most obvious examples of that is what happened after the Spanish team won the World Cup. So there is a gentleman, a man named Luis Rubiales. I'm going to speak his name because we need to speak the name of people who do offensive things. Anything but a gentleman. What? Anything but a gentleman. The president of Spain's soccer federation took this moment of joy for women triumphing and showing their ability, their success, and he decided the thing to do was to kiss on the lips the Spanish forward of the team, Jennifer Hermoso. And by the way, this was unwelcome. She made it absolutely clear this was distasteful to her. This same gentleman later on in a video was seen saying that they are going to reward the Spanish Federation, the women of the team, with a trip to Ibiza for winning. Ibiza is a beautiful um, coastal, I believe, resort, and um, that it would be an opportunity to celebrate his, quote, wedding to this same woman. This is distasteful and disgusting. I'm sure Donald Trump would be more than happy to do some similar thing, and I would like to add, it is my personal opinion that anybody who still supports Trump does not support women, because Women are treated by him and other men terribly. Too many men in this world are pigs, and Luis Rubiales is a pig who should be forced to resign from his position. Has there been an outcry about it? Yes. Well, there it has. This has gone viral. I don't. I haven't seen Dan. Have you seen the latest on it? Yeah, he is basically being pushed out. Uh, they're just kind of working on the details of it. Um, I, from what I've heard uh, in news articles coming from Spain and around the world, um, you know, I mean, like I, I'll put it in a cultural context: is we tend to hug and we usually say hello uh, by kissing on the cheeks or near the cheeks. 
in a culture. When you say this, we, we're we, not I'm talking sorry, about here in the not studio. Not in the United States, not us in the studio. I mean culturally. When I say yeah, no, culturally, I, I mean like yes. as Brazilians, that's how you say hello. And so, but and, what and he most did, Europeans and most Europeans, and you know, so in a cultural context, yes, I, I would have expected him to hug, you know. But what he did, he was hugging and kissing them in the cheeks and lifting them off the ground like they were they were his. I mean, it was just constant. And then the kiss in the in the lips. I mean, that's you know, he, you're a president, and these are the players who are playing for you, and he's just taking it like I'm going to do whatever I want, which is. The conversation you're having right now, right, which is very yeah. much what, what what Trump said about going into the locker room filled with young women, uh, beauty pageant, in a beauty pageant, said, and when asked why he did, he said, because I am who I am. I'm rich and I can get away with it. Well, he said because I own the pageant. Yeah, and Spanish women have been fighting this for a long. I mean, that time. I mean, they're yeah. So well, they, there's a long history apparently. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, uh, Spain had a soccer coach for 27 years who, would dis- who was dismissed in 2015. He, he liked to call his players uh, chavalitas, which apparently means immature girls. Okay, yeah. And there was pressure, and they finally got rid of him. But apparently the current coach isn't so wonderful either. The team has said that they've been disrespected by the male executives and that the current coach has fostered an oppressive environment. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, my understanding is the translation is nubile girls. Ah, okay. Yeah. If I could just add the fact that the Spanish soccer team, or the women's soccer team, won while feuding with their coach just shows how amazing they are without a coach. Because normally, to win a tournament like this and to have a feuding coach where the coach is not in the celebrations, he's kicked off to the side, really, because of these internal feuds, which I didn't know about, uh, just shows how amazing they are collectively and almost makes like the coach irrelevant in this tournament, um, which is shocking to me because, you know, I watch a lot of the, the men's soccer team from England and the coach is so instrumental in getting the players to uh, work together as a team because it's a team sport. Um, so I just think that's even more amazing that the Spanish women's team won while feuding with the coach. And, you know, now you know this about the Spanish president i think in spain today's president of the, of, of the federation of soccer in spain so i mean i think what this means is that uh they will likely remove him from power and the next hire likely will be a, a woman at least probably for the president uh, i don't know what they're going to do with the coach but yeah. uh, duke, duke goldman i want to ask you like right now i see i watched the wnba the other day it was astonishing at the skill levels that i was watching i could remember watching old dominion 30 years ago when the scores ended up 31 to 21 and the level of the skill level was not that high. Well, the skill level now is as high as the skill level can go. It's unbelievable. And in so many different sports, these women are just excelling. When are we going to think of them as athletes and not women? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think men have to think themselves about what they're watching. Are they watching a beauty pageant or are they watching sports figures playing on the fields? and showing their skill and their talent and their professionalism and their desire. The women have to push. Now, uh, Gianni Infantino, I believe his name is, who's the head of FIFA, he, FIFA, he said, um, you know, when, this is what he said in an article that came out recently, women have to push to get equal pay. Um, he cited to some figures. He said that, um, you know, the women uh, 
uh, we're still paying them. They paid the women $110 million, and they paid the men's World Cup $440 million. So the women are getting one quarter what the men are getting. The attendance was close to $2 million for this Women's World Cup, and the men's attendance was $3.4 million, which is more than half of the men's attendance, but they're getting 25%. And he says, Infantino says, I want to see the women succeed. I have four daughters. Great. But the women have to push, so it's on them, right? Well, well let, So let me, let me just ask the obvious question about the U.S. national team. And by the way, FIFA is... Uh, the International Federation of Football, of Soccer. So, uh, the uh, as Dan told us to begin this segment, uh, the U.S. national team lost. Uh, it lost in a nail-biter. It lost in a spectacular fashion to Sweden, and which also was eventually eliminated from the finals, uh, the semifinals. But um, did we lose? What's the legacy of this U.S. national team in 2023? Like any team, this team has to rebuild. They fired the coach, which is, of course, what happens in all sorts of sports when a team loses. They, they weren't successful. And Lindsay Krauss, a uh, former actress who writes um, op-eds in the New York Times, she commented, I think, correctly, you know, it's totally fair to criticize the team for its failures. Um, but some of the people that are criticizing, they're not criticizing for the team's failures. They're criticizing them for having spoken up about what their mind is. Does this team have to be rebuilt? Yeah, you know, it's like every other sport. They're old, right? A lot of these warriors who've won several World Cups have reached that end point. Megan Rapino is done. Many of the others, some of them have already left the team. They have to rebuild. Yeah, she, uh, just so everybody knows, she didn't even start in most of the games. She comes from the bench because in, in soccer, by the time you hit 30, you're, you're sort of old for for uh, a soccer player. You really, your peak is basically from 18 years old to about 29. And 29 is even getting old today because of the amount of running that you have to do. So, again, this is a young squad with a lot of young players that they have to develop the talent. It, it takes time. And America's just going through a transition. But the, the women's soccer team has been uh, far uh, exceeding uh, the men's soccer team in the, in the United States. And by the way, just to add something, there will also be a World Cup tournament coming to the United States in three years. United States, Mexico, and Canada will be hosting the next World Cup in 2026. So I have a question for you, Dan, and for you, Duke. Is the women's soccer game different from the men's in the way that women's basketball, the WNBA, is different from the NBA? Or is it essentially the same game with close to the same or the same skill level? Dan, go ahead. Uh, I couldn't answer I, that question. I, I, I can answer that. Uh, the game, the women's game, I think you can say is developing, and it has taken leaps and bounds into development because the competition is getting better. There are more teams at the top that are competing at the highest level, so that makes the games more exciting. You know, in the early rounds, I saw the United States' first game against Vietnam. And look, Vietnam is not a powerhouse in soccer. And you could see that the Americans women, they won, I think, 3-0. Many people expected them to win 6-0. That doesn't make for a fun game to watch in soccer because the United States team is just going over there and, and peppering them with goals. Um, but all of a sudden, the really exciting game was the United States versus the Netherlands. The Netherlands can play. They've been developing women's soccer. So the United States versus the Netherlands was 1-1 tie in the early part of this World Cup. And it was exciting because both sides are really good. They're at, at a high level. 
And I guess if, if I had any like, critique is, you know, 20 years ago in the 90s, it was really the United States and China or Norway. It was those three really dominant. Everybody sort of knew that that was who was going to be towards the finals, right? And Sweden, too, I think. Those four were maybe dominant. And what's happening is as you put more money and more development and more resources, the competition gets better. The Jamaican women played really well in this World Cup and surprised many people because Jamaica, yeah, they have a good team. But the fact the women made it... Um, to the knockout phase in the World Cup tournament was pretty exciting for Jamaica, you know? And so that's what you're getting. You're getting a better product as more time and more development and you put in resources. And of course, like you've said, Duke, oftentimes they haven't gotten the resources, which, you know, shows a little gap in the game. I like the game for a couple of reasons to watch it. When women get hit, they don't fall down and cry for a, a, a yellow card like the men's game. It, 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 it stops the flow of the game a lot. And the men tend to want to play uh, you know, a little tap on the shin, and they're down on the ground, and they're claiming their leg is broken. They're performing. They're, they're performing, yeah. And the women play. And the women play, and they play hard. And so that creates more of a flow in the women's game. So I like that. And the competition's getting a, a lot better and a lot stronger at the top. There's a lot of good teams, Germany, Sweden, the United States, the Netherlands. Um, I don't yeah, know what it so. was like 20 odd years Brazil. ago where the U.S. women's team beat Thailand 13 to nothing. And, a, yeah. and, and 13 to nothing is like 100 to nothing in a baseball in game. In a baseball game, yeah. Right. I mean, it's yeah. like no competition at all. Now, we've seen this in uh, women's basketball. When UConn was a, a, a powerhouse and nobody else was good, they'd win games by 50, 60 points. But I could, That's yeah, not happening anymore. The, the Spanish women's team in this World Cup, they lost to Japan in one of the tournament, uh, in one of the games. Five to zero, which is a really high scoring game. And it just shows you the Japanese women also had a, a great World Cup. They were talked about as a potential final as they were so good. And again, five zero, not a common score in soccer. Usually it's two, three, maybe. Um, so again, the competition there is growing and you don't just see it in sort of the European elites. It's happening now in Japan and, and other teams. Duke Goldman, in the minute we have before we take a break, I, I just want to ask you, you, you have a choice. There's a uh, U.S. men's national team game on? Is the U.S. women's national team game on? Do you care which one you watch? You I'm not going to watch either one because I'm not that interested in soccer. <laughs> All right? But that's not the point. I will watch. When I had the choice now, I go to watch women's Division three basketball locally here, Smith College and Amherst College, rather than men, rather than any men's basketball. I'd rather watch women play basketball than professional men. Why? Because... Because they play the game the way it should be played. They play the game the way my favorite Nick team of the 70s, of Walt Frazier, Dave DeBuscher, Bill Bradley, and all of them play. They pass the ball. They look for the open person. They play a, a, a game that I know to be basketball. Under the rim. Under the rim. I'd rather watch them. So, you know, would I watch the women rather than the men play soccer? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I'm not that big a soccer fan, but I do recognize the greatness of these players, and I will always remember Brandy Chastain ripping off her jersey and celebrating, and what a beautiful moment that was, a woman who was saying, I'm good. And I'm celebrating. Actually, she was saying, we're good. We're good. Thank you. I agree. We're going to take a break. We, this is our Fair Play segment with Duke Goldman. We'll be right back after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. 
Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! Football season kicks off Saturday from New Mexico State against the Aggies. Join me and Patriots legend Pete Brock starting with the pregame show at 6.30 right here on your new home for UMass football, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with uh, baseball writer, sports observer, Duke Goldman. And, and just when we were in the break, Bill, you made an observation about uh, our conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, we recognize we have this oddity of four guys talking about women's sports without a woman in the studio. And... It is a bit of an oddity. It's just the way it worked out today. It's certainly not the way we've covered women's sports on this program in the past. Right, but what we have uh, done in the past, we have talked about it sometimes, and I remember our conversation with a longtime coach, very successful sh coach, Sherry uh, Webb, who uh, I think 37 seasons in four different sports, won three state championships in the high school level, and she's now a coach, a field hockey coach with Mount Holyoke, and Sherry just said, uh, her least favorite term in the English language is tomboy. She wished they just called them athletes, Duke Goldman. And, you know, that's what we have here. We have women who are tremendously athletic and successful in, in athletics and who are pushing the boundaries out. We've had women compete in male golf tournaments. I truly believe there will be a woman pro professional major league baseball player in some time in the future. How soon? I don't know. Probably it will be a pitcher. Um, women are getting closer and closer to male performances in track and field and swimming. Um, and women are great. They are proving themselves. And the Women's World Cup has taken off and... 
actually, again, uh, the head of FIFA said they broke even, which may not sound like a lot, but that's the way sports goes. Usually you have to lose money first before you start making money, like so many other businesses. And the fact that they broke even on the Women's World Cup means it's going to be a moneymaker. Which means it will be promoted, which means there will be more, more, more recruiting, which means there will be... Uh, uh, coaches who will be paid more, which means the comp- competitive level will continue to uh, get better and better, and that, in fact, women's sports are as exciting to watch, sometimes more exciting to watch, than men's sports. So I want to quote a woman named Nicole Melton, who is the head of the sports management department, Mark McCormick, sports management at UMass. I do have a connection with them. I just want to mention that. Um, but she said... Uh, in uh, the first of monthly columns that are going to be in the Gazette uh, from the McCormick School, she said that as Women's World Cup 2023 captivates global audiences, it is a vivid reminder of the groundbreaking impact women athletes are making. And she said that the Women's World Cup emphasizes that investing in women's sports transcends mere competition. It's about catalyzing transformation across lives, societies, and industries. That, I think, is what is to come. But there still is a long way to go because Nadia Tronchoni, an editor at El País, Spain's biggest newspaper, she said that this was more than a title for Spanish women when they won the World Cup. She said, the women, the girls of this country, celebrated the fact that our stubbornness has finally defeated machismo. <laughs> but Rubiales's kiss to Hermoso reminds us that the road ahead is a long one. Yeah, and I, just, I wanted to also mention, is Dan, that uh, Spain is also a very divided country. There's a lot of conservatives, you know, Catholicism. So there is, when you talk about machismo, it's a, it's a different form of conservatism that I think uh, Americans aren't, uh, well, they might be used to it now, given that Trump's rise and things like that. But, you know, it was ruled for a long time by a, a very conservative um, strand of, of political forces. You know, I, I, feel- I had, I had a, an experience, my wife and I, Marcin and I, had uh, an experience I will never forget. We were in Barcelona, and we happened to be there when uh, Spain was in the World Cup. We saw the, you know, the the first round and the knockout round. We were there for three weeks, so we got to see the entire tournament in Spain, which Spain won. Two days before Spain won the World Cup, there was 1.1 million people estimated to be uh, in the Catalan Independence March through the center of Barcelona, saying, get out of Spain, leave Spain, we want independence. Two days later, there was one and a half million people, Catalan people, in Barcelona celebrating Spain's win. So we just saw how much the World Cup meant to the Spanish, despite their political uh, inclination. So um, I I love that you've come on today, Duke, wanting to uh, sort of remind us all how important it is to see our women athletes as athletes first instead of women and uh, give you a last word to sum up what we've been talking about today. I think women in 2023 are moving the boundaries. I think we, all of us, men and women, we need to enable them. And we enable them by recognizing them, by recognizing them for who they are and not for sex, gender, race, 
or anything else. It's about their performance. They will shut up when we shut up and we stop treating them like objects. And I think we could, that transcends sports, doesn't it? It does. We're about to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to uh, freelance reporter Dusty Christensen. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Just days after it was announced that Dr. Michael Morris would be leaving his role as Amherst Pelham Public Schools superintendent, Another staff member has announced their resignation. Regional School Committee Chair Ben Harrington announced his resignation in a lengthy social media post early yesterday morning, and yesterday was his last day. This comes just days after it was announced that Dr. Michael Morris would no longer serve as superintendent, a decision that was described as mutually agreed upon. Back in May, several staff members were put on leave as a Title IX investigation began into the handling of a reported LGBTQ plus bullying at the school. The report is expected to be out sometime this week. The former site of the Hampshire County Register of Deeds is set to be sold this fall. The building at 33 King Street will be turned into a new multi-story building, according to the Gazette, with a minimum sales price of $2.5 million. The property consists of a nearly one-and-a-half-acre parcel located next to the Calvin Theater. Proceeds from the potential sale would be split between the city and the state. The city council will discuss specifics of the bidding at a joint meeting on September 6th, and the city hopes to start accepting bids in early September. Congressman Jim McGovern will be embarking on his district-wide farm tour today. The 13th annual tour will include visits to 11 farms across Western Mass to hear about the challenges local farmers are facing and discuss the needs of farmers as they recover from historic rainfall and flooding. Farms that will receive a visit include Mayville Farm Creamery in West Hampton, Flat Rock Farm in Chesterfield, and Natural Roots in Conway. Mostly sunny today, low humidity and a little breezy out of the north, a high of 76 to 80. Clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. It'll be mostly sunny again tomorrow, a high of 74 to 78. Some showers are possible Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Uh, before we turn to uh, our very special guest, always a special guest, uh, that is uh, freelance uh, reporter Dusty Christensen, I just want to talk about, last night I went to a really remarkable event. It was hosted at Berkshire Brewing Company in uh, Deerfield. It was to uh, support the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund, which is raising money for those farmers uh, who are in distress as a result of uh, the flooding, which they have uh, uh, suffered such great losses uh, as a result of recently. There was just a panoply of, of dignitaries and, and incredible speakers, uh, our representatives of the United States Congress, Jim McGovern, and Senator Joe Comerford and representatives Natalie Blay and Dan Carey and Mindy Baum and Aaron Saunders and Susanna Whips and so many other people that were there to make this. Uh, it was a really well-attended and, I hope, successful fundraiser. Uh, and I learned uh, from Phil Corman, the executive director of CESA, um, that uh, uh, there are applications that are due on Friday, the 25th. Applications are due for any farmer who wishes to uh, uh, be uh, counted among those who get disbursements um, from these uh, from the fund that's, uh, I think, it's going to be $5 million goal, and I think they already have a million dollars before last night's event uh, to disseminate among farmers. It's going to be equal amounts to all the eligible applicants. And so if you uh, contact the United Way, of Central Massachusetts, um, you can get an application there so that you can um, be part of this distribution of the first round of funding um, by September 1st. Uh, it might take till shortly after Labor Day, but there is real money. The big issue is let's not allow them to make more loans because that'll send them further into debt. Let's give grants of money. This is privately uh, raised money, and it'll supplement the $20 million, which the Commonwealth has already provided for those farmers who have uh, who are in distress. There are 7,100 farmers in this region. I think there's 118 farms that uh, need our help. So, uh, for those those farmers who are listening, or if you know anybody, please tell them. They could also contact CISA um, in order to uh, find those applications. So please do that. Meanwhile, there's so much to talk about with our extraordinary freelance reporter who's, who finds his way into every important uh, uh, issue or controversy that, that faces us, Dusty Christensen, and he's joining us virtually. Hello, Dusty. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure to have you. So uh, in this morning's Globe, I saw a really interesting article. Um, the article above the fold um, was Mass Police Oversight Panel Releases Public Database of officer disciplinary records. I know that your colleague, Andrew 
Quimmier has been on this show talking about his lawsuit against our district attorney for his failure or refusal to release such information. But uh, what do you know about this issue and about uh, what's called POST? The acronym is POST um, for the Massachusetts Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission, this POST release of information. Yes. So uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, the Post Commission was co- created at the end of 2020 as part of the police reform bill that happened after uh, the, the police murder of George Floyd. Um, and from early on, the Post Commission was saying that they were going to be releasing this database of uh, accusations against police officers. Uh, I think initially that disciplinary records database was supposed to include all allegations and findings against active police officers. Um, but last year, the the self-imposed uh, deadline for posting that database came and went as the Post Commission said they needed more time to make sure they had all the data in their database right. Uh, Fast forward uh, a a number of months and uh, the Post Commission reached back out to police departments, uh, which had already sent data about all of their internal affairs investigations to the Post Commission and said that now they were asking for data again. And this time they were just asking for sustained allegations against active police officers and the discipline that was imposed on them. That database was finally published today. As I said, it's been a long time uh, coming. I'm sorry, yesterday it was published. Uh, I had a chance to look at it this morning and uh, to be candid as a reporter, there's, there, it feels like there's a lot lacking there. Obviously, anytime the, the state posts a database like this for us to go and dig into, um, it can it can really uh, answer some questions or put some questions in front of us that, that need answering. Here, Again, like I said, this database only contains summaries of sustained allegations against active police officers. Uh, As listeners may know, I've spent uh, several years digging into internal affairs investigations at several local police departments, including Northampton, Holyoke, Amherst, and by and large, a large number of complaints uh, do not get sustained by police departments, uh, especially when it's a civilian that initially made that uh, that complaint against a police officer. So if if a civilian, for example, alleged excessive force against a police officer and the department found no wrongdoing, that that particular case will not show up in this database that the state has just published. So obviously that leaves a lot of stuff off of the list. I'm seeing other reporters saying that they're struggling to find cases they know should be in the database, but but can't see them there. Um, so a lot left to be desired in this database that the Post Commission has, has just put up. Well, Dusty Christensen, as a reporter, uh, you guys are our, our, our eyes and ears. You let us see things and know things that we otherwise wouldn't know. Why is it important for us to know not only the sustained disciplinary and and related kinds of uh, information about officers, but also the complaints about officers? Uh, That's a great question. And I think the best example of why it's important to know more than just what the department sustained is this recent violent arrest that happened in Northampton of the 60-year-old woman from Holyoke, Marisol Dreuch, um, who was arrested by Northampton police officers after they stopped her for a headlight being out. Uh, within five minutes, that traffic stop turned into officers tackling her to the ground, uh, pinning her down, pepper spraying her. Um, 
It was a, an event that shocked the city, led to a big protest in front of City Hall. The police department never sustained any uh, any allegations of wrongdoing against those officers. And so that case, for example, doesn't appear in this database that the state has posted online. Obviously, we've seen from the reaction in the previous few weeks that a lot of people have taken issue with that arrest. A lot of people have suggested that it was indeed misconduct or that it should have been seen as such. And so it's important for us to be able to see these kinds of things, to know what sorts of de decisions that police departments are making in the first place. Um, as just one example, you know, I spent a year digging into every single civilian complaint that civilians had made against the Holyoke Police Department from 2020 through 2019. Um, there were 69 investigations, and in nearly every single case, the Holyoke Police Department dismissed allegations of wrongdoing against its officers. That means not sustained, right? That means not sustained. Correct. Correct. And so what that would mean is that, you know, if you were just relying on this database to understand which departments have compl active complaints against them and, and what officers are facing a lot of complaints, uh, there's a whole there's a whole world that's completely uh, dark if you're just focusing on this particular database. So that's why as reporters, we dig further than this. Um, I wish that the state had posted all the data that it had or initially uh, had said that it would post. Uh, it's disappointing to say the least. Dusty Christensen, is there any requirement for posts to look into anything other than what the police departments provide to it as the data? In other words, a police officer uh, for example, engages in excessive force, it's videotaped, it goes viral, but there's no complaint internally. Does anything happen with that as far as Post is concerned? So the Post Commission uh, does have the ability to investigate in instance, uh, you know, incidents uh, and, and, and allegations themselves. Uh, when I talked to the executive director, Enrique Zuniga, uh, all the way back, uh, I, I think it was at the end of last year, you know, the, the agency was staffing up in its investigative uh, unit and people who have a complaint against a police officer can obviously make that complaint to the police department that officer uh, works for. They can also make it directly to the post commission and the post commission can investigate those uh, those complaints. So that is something that the post commission can do. I have not had a chance to see how that investigative process plays out. Uh, I'm eager to to see or to hear from anybody uh, who has filed a complaint with the Post Commission to, to hear how that went. Dusty, can you go back to your findings and your investigation regarding the Holyoke Police Department, which in essence says, if you make a complaint about a police officer as a civilian, you lose. Is that pretty typical? That is pretty typical. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, so in Holyoke, during the 10-year period we looked at, uh, officers were named in a complaint 92 times, uh, and the department's top brass only sustained or upheld those allegations against an officer three times uh, out of the 92. Um, that is, unfortunately, pretty standard, especially when it comes to civilian complaints against police officers. For that same story, we talked to an academic, uh, uh, William uh, Terrell was his name, from Arizona State University, a former military police officer himself. Um, he said it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction, time to time, but generally studies have found the sustained rate for those complaints to be around 10%. So obviously that's 
significant loss. You know, that was about what we found in Northampton, if I remember correctly, uh, the the percent of, of civilian complaints that were upheld against officers. Um, but as, as the fourth estate, as reporters, as uh, people who are, are trying to be watchdogs for local government and to hold powerful institutions and people accountable, being able to see all of it is super important because then we can also analyze the decisions that these institutions are making, not just assuming that they're making the correct decisions and only looking at the cases they deemed to be misconduct. Um, so this is this post-commission report. You can see it in today's Globe, or you could go to the uh, to the website um, for the Massachusetts uh, Peace Officer Standard and Training Commission, and you could uh, look at the 3,400 records for for officers from 273 law enforcement agencies across the state. And uh, as Dusty's saying, we don't think it's at all as inclusive as it should be, but it nevertheless is interesting information. When we come back, Dusty, I would like to talk to you about what's going on with uh, the Michaels uh, store in Hadley. Um, There seems to be a move to unionize Hadley retailers. We'll be right back with Dusty Christensen right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free You Choose Rewards. You Choose is our debit cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards is free. And with You Choose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with You Choose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash youchoose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with freelance reporter Dusty Christensen, an incredible resource for this region. 
And Dusty, there is a uh, there are reports uh, we periodically see that um, employees are increasingly organizing themselves into collective bargaining units to uh, better uh, to have better uh, terms and conditions of their employment. Um, there seems to be a move afoot locally for that, right? That's right. Uh, I just reported yesterday in the shoestring that uh, that earlier this month, uh, some 24 workers at the Hadley location of the arts and crafts a retailer giant Michaels uh, announced their intent to unionize with the United Food and Commercial Workers uh, or, or UFCW. Um, they are far from uh, alone. So this would be if these Michaels workers, uh, they filed for an election with the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, that election, it doesn't seem like it's been scheduled yet, but uh, when it is, they'll vote on whether or not to, to unionize and the company will be obligated to recognize their union if they win. And if they do win, they will be the very first Michaels location nationwide to unionize. I think Michaels has stores in 49 out of the 50 states. They like to call themselves the, the largest arts and craft retailer in, the, in, the, in North America. So, uh, it's a big deal that they will be the first at the company to unionize. That is turning out to not be such a big deal in Hadley, where we're having first after first in terms of labor organizing. Uh, a year prior, last summer, just down the road, uh, Trader Joe's unionized. They were the very first Trader Joe's and the entire country uh, to unionize and the independent union they they formed trader joe's united has now gone on to unionize uh workers elsewhere across the country uh in minneapolis minnesota louisville kentucky oakland california um and they continue to fight for uh you know better working conditions and 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 uh the rights of, of the workers at the store here in hadley that seemed to have really sparked uh, some union organizing on that route nine corridor because uh, just earlier this year in May, uh, workers at Barnes and Noble down the way from Trader Joe's uh, voted to unionize with UFCW Local 1459. That was the first standalone Barnes and Noble location in the country to unionize. Two weeks prior, uh, workers at a Barnes and Noble College Booksellers location at Rutgers University uh, had unionized. Um, but that effort in Hadley was the first at a Barnes and Noble, a standalone Barnes and Noble. And now we have this Michaels crew who's hoping to become yet another first, the third, in the 5,000 person town of Hadley that, if it's known outside of Western Mass at all, is probably known for its asparagus, but now is known for <laughs> new retail organizing. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Russell Street, the, uh, the center of, un of new unionization, which is sorely needed among, especially among these big retailers that you're, you're, you're talking about. Is, uh, I know that there's, a, oh, there's tens of thousands of Starbucks, and in some of them we're starting to see a, a move toward unionization. Has that happened in this region yet? Uh, that's not happened in uh, in our region here in the valley um, uh, for for whatever reason. Uh, you're correct to mention that it's it's many many stores across the country uh, that have unionized uh, Starbucks. Um, that has not happened here locally for whatever reason. You know, I think it's important to note for listeners too that you know it is uh, super. Uh, exciting anytime news like this happens of a of a new store organizing for the first time. We should know that that union density, that is the percentage of people, workers in America in a union, has been on a decline for decades and decades. This past year, that trend continued. Uh, the percentage dipped yet again. Uh, it is a really low percentage, well below 10% of private sector workers who are in a union in the United States. So 
this may be a sign of those sorts of uh, organizing efforts picking up, and maybe this year we'll see that trend turn around. Uh, but it is important to note that despite these high profile instances of, of workers unionizing, uh, union density does continue to decline in this country. Bill, do you have an explanation for why it's happening in this region that we're seeing more of it than we are used to seeing? I think that once workers see the people next door organizing themselves and achieving results to benefit their working conditions and the terms and conditions of their employment, they say, why not us? And by the way, there's a union there to protect them. And they didn't get fired. And there will be community support. And there is community support. And we're sick and tired and we're not going to take it anymore. And I think that that has a galvanizing effect and it allows a local community to be supportive of workers who need the support and appreciate the support. Dusty, in your reporting, have you actually asked that question? Yeah, and, and uh, Bill is exactly right. I mean, we saw that in 2018 when I was one of the founding organizers of the of the labor union at the Daily Hampshire Gazette. We were inspired by workers at the LA Times and workers here, uh, you know, unionizing, but also workers here locally in other industries, unionizing, uh, working towards strikes. All of that showed us the world that was possible for us in our own workplace. And in talking to workers from uh, both the Michaels and the Barnes and Noble that unionized, both of them cited Trader Joe's just down the street as a big inspiration for them deciding to to unionize as well. So there definitely is a spark that gets that gets lit uh, when a, a a place unionizes, and oftentimes that means that others are are quick to follow in their footsteps. Has it made a difference at the Trader Joe's in Hadley? I certainly know that they now have a voice they didn't have beforehand when they were non-union. Uh, they continue to work on uh, bargaining a contract. They filed a, a, a bunch of uh, unfair labor practice charges against the Hadley Trader Joe's over the firing of a longtime employee uh, who'd worked there for 18 years. Uh, the union says that it was a clear case of, uh, of retaliation for union organizing. I think the companies disputed that, but the union was just out in Boston really recently protesting against uh, the firing of this worker, Stephen Andre, and and uh, and continue to say that there was no uh, legitimate basis for it, and it was just a case of union busting. Let me ask you this, Dusty. There's a second answer to the question that you and I were just trying to, 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 to respond to Buzz about, and that is that the customers in some of these stores are in fact pretty progressive. And I think that plays a, uh, a part, that the customers will be supportive of the workers. Uh, certainly, I have I've heard people in the Trader Joe's line say, hey, congratulations on your union. Uh, you know, or I'm, I'm in the, I think I heard one person say, I'm in the nurses union, you know, uh, good luck with, with your uh, election before they had, had won their election. Um, that certainly is a part of it. It also is worth noting that that Route 9 corridor uh, in uh, Hadley is just down the way from uh, UMass Amherst, Amherst College, uh, you know, Hampshire College. Uh, there probably are a lot of young people, college workers, who are looking to unionize as well. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that people can't forget, it isn't just how much you get paid, it's also job security. Retailers, often, they, they don't pay much, and you could be fired in a, in a, in a blink of an eye, but uh, with a collective bargaining agent protecting you, it's much less likely. Uh, Dusty Christensen, I love when you're on. I learned so much, and thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for joining Talk to Talk. Remember, like Dusty Christensen, walk the walk. Makes us strong when the union's 
inspiration and through the workers' blood shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP North.